Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about how our political institutions are failing us and ideas for fixing them. Today's episode, gerrymandering. We're going to explore what gerrymandering is, what the courts say about it, and what we might want to do about it. I'm Lee Drutman. I'm a senior fellow at New America. I'm James Wallner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the School of Public Affairs at American University. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University and a contributor to the independent political science blog, The Mischiefs of Faction. Oh, I'll have to check that out. What's the URL? Mischiefsoffaction.com. Oh, cool. Great, great URL. Great blog. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, all right. So gerrymandering. What is it? Tell uh, us. Uh, you want me to explain uh, this? I, all right. I would like you to. All right. Yeah. All right. We're all well, yours. Or, okay. Ross Perot. Gerrymandering is uh, what people use to describe uh, districts that they don't like. What kind of districts? Like funny shaped districts. Like they look like. Like sal- what kind of districts? Like congressional districts. In the House? Uh, yeah, in the House. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yes, congressional districts in the House that they don't like. Um, but it, it, it generally refers to the practice of legislatures, which do most of the uh, district line drawing in states, drawing districts either to benefit incumbents or to benefit one party or the other. And every 10 years, we have a, a census. And after that, the, the states have the uh, responsibility of redrawing district lines to create equally sized districts. And in the process, sometimes they move voters around in order to make sure that they that the party in power gets more seats or incumbents get safe seats. And in fact, there were kind of there were two uh, kind of extreme or several extreme gerrymandering cases over the last few years. And there's one that that uh, so sort of Wisconsin case that came to the Supreme Court and was was thrown out. There was a Maryland case. Uh, there was a North Carolina case, and 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 the Supreme Court has basically said earlier this year that well, you know, we don't have any way of, of ruling on this. So whatever states want to do, as long as you know, as long as as long as they they can get away with it, fine fine by us. So we'll we'll discuss that decision, and then we will uh, think about what solutions to to this issue of, of drawing districts. Now, uh, the, the uh, I mean, gerrymandering, it's not, it's not a new problem. In fact, the, the reason that we use the phrase gerrymandering is because a guy named Elbridge Gerry, uh, who was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence or the, the or the, or the, Constitution. He did not support uh, or sign the Constitution. That's right. He, he was, was he was Declaration three. of Independence. Right, but he was, oh, he there. was there. He was he there, just, but he yeah. was he was he did not sign. But he was a he was a cranky uh, he was a, he was cranky, a cranky, cranky, cranky old Massachusetts guy who 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 uh, created a district that Very cold uh, that, that, that that benefited him that looked like a salamander, so they called it the gerrymander, and that that appellation has stuck with us. So under uh, the sorry to interrupt, but under the Constitution, uh, that. Elbridge Jerry ultimately decided not to support in Philadelphia. What are the limits on what states can do in terms of drawing congressional districts? Because they have the authority to draw their con- congressional districts, correct? However they want. Well, Article 1, Section 4 basically delegates the power to the states to... The elections clause. To Yes, the elections clause to do, do as they please, except Congress reserves the power to tell states what to do. Now, the, the largest or the, the most significant use of this power was the 1842 Apportionment Act, which uh, I know... Everybody's favorite? Every, everybody's favorite Apportionment Act, um, <laughs> in, in which the, the Whigs mandated single-member districts 
uh, after a lot of states had moved to to at large block voting, particularly Democratic states, to to gain large majorities because the Whigs were hoping to stem some midterm losses that that came from the fact that they uh, had a very unpopular president, John Tyler, and the entire cabinet quit. And and yeah, they were the Whigs. I just want to I want to jump in here though, and just to point out that what this illustrates, which is important for the gerrymandering debate, which is that people parties and people always try to mess with institutions to to gain an advantage it's not a new development yes but not even mess with them i, I think it's an important point to make there the expectation is that they will draw the districts right and and so in the 1830s uh democrats could basically win about two-thirds of the of the of the votes or the seats in the house with with just a little over 50 percent of the votes because they had moved to this statewide voting system where if, if they controlled 60% of the votes in the state, then they got the entire slate of House representatives if you had statewide voting. So moving to single-member districts from multi-member districts, with uh, this, this was not proportional representation. This was just straight ticket voting. But what this, I think, demonstrates, so under the Constitution, just to make it real simple. Yeah, let's make it real simple. States have the authority subject to action subsequent action by Congress yeah. to draw their districts. However they want. Then the question becomes whether or not the way in which they draw their districts is good or bad. Well, or whether or not it's an abuse of their power or not, which is essentially a question of whether or not you think it is good or bad the way the districts are drawn. Well, well there, there's one more addendum to that is the, the one person, one vote case, cases in the 60s, which, which is the only limit which outside said, of Congress said that that states had to to basically make sure that every all, all the districts were equally sized. Uh, and then in 1967, Congress passed the Uniform Congressional Districting Act, which codified that. So can I ask a question here about another another dimension? Of this my understanding of the jurisprudence on this is that you cannot explicitly racially gerrymander a district to make it majority minority. But at the same time, it is permissible for states to take into account political communities of interest in, as they're drawing districts. Is so that right? Partisan, There's a lot of ambiguity. Partisan here. gerrymandering is okay. Racial gerrymandering, if you're trying to underrepresent racial minorities, is not okay. But how you define that, I think, is is and how you delineate and, right. and is, is just it's just a mess. So the state's power, just to kind of state, draw this state, out and make it real clear out, for the listeners. It, make it real clear. They can do basically whatever they want with the exception that it has to conform to one person, one vote, which right. means that the districts have to be equal, more or less. And the districts cannot be drawn subject to an overt racial bias. That's right. But the courts ultimately, unlike one person, one vote, which has been subsequently codified, the courts are the one who determine whether or not that overt racial bias right. is present in drawing the districts. Right. Whether they're trying deliberately trying to dilute minority votes, right. for right. example. Uh, although in some states, minority votes are basically Democratic votes, so there may be some question around around that. But uh, yeah, so to, to to summarize quickly, then one Julia's point: partisan gerrymandering and parties using districting processes to uh, advantage themselves has been around pretty much forever. Uh, states have the power, subject to a few limitations. Uh, so and so so what? So the thinking here is with partisan gerrymandering, then, is that you have a party in a state, 
that controls the state legislature. And that party then uses its power under the Constitution to draw a map that doesn't have an overt racial bias, presumably, and doesn't violate one person, one vote, but very clearly gives one party more representation in that state than another party. Is that yeah, so, so that's, that's like, what we're talking about here is partisan gerry- gerrymandering. Right. So like Julia's home state of Wisconsin is is one it's of the cold. states that it's another cold, cold one. that has that has been actively in which Republicans controlling the state legislature have actively redrawn districts in a way that clearly benefits Republicans. And to Julia's point, this is something that has happened since the beginning or at least since we've had parties, but the question is today we see that is a bad thing. Whereas in the past, it seemed like just what happened. Right. And I, I or was acceptable, more or less. I Is mean, that correct? I, we don't have public opinion surveys, so I, I don't know. We don't know, right? We, I mean, we like know loosely that defined. loosely defined institutional confidence is low now right so we you know we in a previous episode we talked about the senate and people's lack of confidence in congress i do think that there is a sense gerrymandering is a very you know it's a it's a term that people can throw around it's a thing that feels like it should have some remedies it's a thing in particular we're going to talk about the supreme court in a little bit where you might say okay the court should step in and make this fair or we should have an independent commission to make this fair. The other thing that I think there's a line that's caught on, and I don't know the origins of this line, but it's the idea that politicians get to pick their voters and that's somehow undemocratic. I do want to add here, there's so there's a couple different ways of thinking about what what gerrymandering can do. And one of them is, as Lee said, that something that's like the disproportionality of the state legislative districts in Wisconsin, where in a district the votes you know, often or a state that often votes 50-50, I've hit my microphone gesturing wildly, you get a, a huge Republican advantage in the way the districts are shaped. But you also hear complaints about gerrymandering usually aimed at the U.S. House of Representatives um, that indicates the districts are drawn to make incumbents safe. And so if you draw a district to have to be 89% Republican or 89% Democratic, that that contributes to um to polarization and also that it makes by making incumbents safe it makes them less accountable so these are you know these are some of the other complaints that you hear and i think that while we don't necessarily have clear measures of when these attitudes emerge they map on very neatly to contemporary objections to what's wrong with politics in ways that are understandable not only not only map onto the elite discourse but map onto what many ordinary regular old folks think about what's wrong with politics. So so gerrymandering is one of these words that everybody throws out as a well we've got to stop gerrymandering. We we gerrymandering's if only we fixed gerrymandering then we would fix our politics. Uh what what does the political science literature say on whether uh gerrymandering is responsible for all of our political problems? Right. So it, it, we we if we just fix gerrymandering we'd get right. rid of everything, right Julia? Get rid of everything. Right. So, okay. So I want to be very fair and say that the literature on the impact of of House gerrymandering on polarization is a little mixed. Um, I would say that the balance of opinion is, and the balance of evidence is toward that gerrymandering isn't causing polarization. It isn't necessarily making all that much worse. That if you look at when when legislators have exhibited more partisan behavior, those the, the discernible shifts do not line up with redistricting, right? They're within these 10-year redistricting cycles. Um, the districts that have been redrawn by more partisan um, authorities are not, you know, by a state legislature are not more 
those states don't have or those legislators don't have more polarization, um, don't demonstrate more polarized behavior. But there are a couple of studies that suggest that, that in fact, that, you know, if you look at which states are or which districts are gerrymandered, that they're they look more polarized over time. So, that, like I said, it's sort of mixed. Um, but I it is my personal beef when people say that gerrymandering causes polarization because I think that the sort sorting of the electorate is what causes polarization. Right. I mean, well, one example is that the Senate, to the extent it's behaving in similar ways to the House, well, you, there's no gerrymandering, right, exactly. gerrymandering there. Excellent point. Um, because it's, you have these state boundaries. Although a lot of Senators did start as House members. So this is the kind of socialization yeah, kind of thesis. This is the, the Gingrich senators, yes. the strong theorial exactly. argument. So, but I also think if you go back to this idea of gerrymandering in the past and when you didn't have these limitations, even the minor limitations that are, exist today on what states can and can't do, you still had realignments. Mm-hmm. You still had parties changing. I mean, the Democrat, the Jacksonian Democrats try as they might ultimately can't hold on, right? They're not, you don't hear about the Jacksonian Democrats today, right? And the Whigs, we all kind of, maybe we all don't know what happened to the Whigs, but they're certainly not around anymore. Uh, Parties have changed. And and it seems to me that incumbents, yes, are generally safe, but there's still change in American politics. So that tells me just in a kind of common sense way, not getting into all of these different, you know, regression analyses and everything else, that gerrymandering itself is not necessarily the reason why, or the sole reason why, American politics is kind of stuck in uh, neutral, if you will, or however you want to describe it today. I guess I would push back a little bit on that by saying that it is, is not only does it fit a narrative of what's wrong with American politics, but it fits an actual thing of what's wrong with American politics, which is that it gives partisans a tool to consolidate their power against each other. And so that's been one of the arguments in, in Wisconsin, is that essentially if you weaken the votes of Democratic voters in what's otherwise generally a pretty evenly split state, then the Republican Party gets to control the state legislature and they get to make even more of the rules. Right. And and then you don't have Democrats have very steep climb to get back into power. I know other states I just happen to live in Wisconsin. There are other states. um, New Jersey comes to mind where the Democrats have been criticized for doing the same thing. So that's where I think, you know, the the other element of this and the element that gets lost in the more, you know, in the narratives about gerrymandering causes polarization is gerrymandering allows partisans to consolidate power of the other party. It's anti-competitive. I I think that's true up to a point, because while it does allow them to consolidate power, it's also premised on this idea of parties. And gerrymandering doesn't protect incumbents against competitive primaries. It doesn't can protect incumbents against uh, rival views of how parties should operate. And so it's premised on this idea that political parties are these kind of monolithic or cohesive things, both within states, within districts, and and nationally. And, and it seems to me that that, at least I don't see that being the case. And so, yes, while I think it may in- inhibit change in the near term, it seems that the, the broad sweep of American history demonstrates this very cl- clearly. And politicians can't control the electorate. It, it, they've never been able to do that. And, and so now all of a sudden in the 21st century, partisan gerrymandering is a problem because it allows partisan, uh, partisans to control the electorate and therefore perpetuate indefinitely. And I'm intentionally making, you know, being provocative here to illustrate the underlying point, but to perpetuate indefinitely their hold on power 
it doesn't seem that doesn't seem to be happening. But maybe you know, I get that people are up, you know upset or frustrated with things, and they want to see change faster. So <laughs> instead of just letting the normal kind of broad, you know, long durée or whatever Foucault said of uh, of you know things to play out. So what are the solutions here? I mean, how do we? If you don't want to sit around and wait for your great grandson or great granddaughter to one day live in a land that is represented by a different, uh, you know, politician, then what do you do in the here and now? Well, one thing you do is you you try to bring a case to the Supreme Court, which anti gerrymandering activists have been doing for a few years. And finally, this year, the Supreme Court, which had been playing footsie with the idea that maybe there'd be some standard they could use to rule a certain gerrymander certain person gerrymanders as as extreme uh justice roberts writing for the majority said well you know what it's beyond our ability to come up with any standard that would be consistent over time we can't do it it's a non-justiciable issue and so we're just going to punt there's nothing in the constitution that says that uh that you can't do partisan gerrymandering and so we just don't find any anything that that we can any any legal basis by which we can compel states to to comply with some standard. Before we jump into this decision, and I think it'd be very helpful if you could explain it for us, certainly for myself and for our listeners, the ins and outs of it. But prior to that, because we have to, I think, understand and have an appreciation of the alternatives. What did people do before the Supreme Court? Right. What did they what did they do in the 19th century? What did they do in the 20th century? When you're upset with your representative and you feel like the cards are stacked against you, what was the solution? I mean, there was a Supreme Court then. I just want to make sure. We're yeah. clear. What? You're talking about before the rights revolution, right? I mean, before this this sort of 60s. Yeah, but generally before Supreme this Court. idea that the that court this... is ultimately where we go. Yeah. But the, well, but well the, the court is the I today we think the court is where we go to solve our problems. And it seems to me that has not I'm not saying that's right or wrong. But prior to that discussion, I think it's important to get into how did how did how does the Constitution envision this issue being solved, well, and we, then how do how has our practice in America both up and up and up to the progressive movement and even after the progressive movement how did what was the understanding of solving this problem? Well, for a hundred years we lived with malapportioned districts uh, throughout the the states, right? I mean, the, I mean, certainly people are upset by by. The very notion of the idea of a gerrymander signifies to me that people thought this was not a good idea and were trying to to characterize it so that they could prevail in a different way, right? I mean, otherwise they wouldn't call it gerrymandering. Sure, and and they work through policies, but that doesn't j- just because people lived and survived in an unfair system doesn't mean that we should perpetuate that system. I mean, we we had a as a society we've evolved in many ways to become more equitable and fair to a, a wider range of people. I mean, what, what did what did women do when there were only two jobs allowed for them, nurses and, you know, and and uh, and school teacher? Yeah, they, they engaged in politics. And so right. I, what I would like to do, though, before what right. I'm trying to do before we get to the Supreme Court is say the Constitution envisions a solution to this. It may be an inadequate solution. It may not work. But the solution is under the Constitution, at least, that you get different state legislatures, right? That's one. You get different, the Congress makes a decision, right? Sure, the yeah. Congress can come in. So how do you do that? Well, you raise the awareness of the issue and you try to win that way in the same way that the abolitionists tried to, to abolish slavery, the same way that the suffragettes tried to gain the right to vote. You do things like call gerrymandering, gerrymandering. You engage in a political well, debate. That, that to, hasn't been working that well. well but 
but my point is that the idea of whether or not it's working, it is, that's one kind of solution or class of solutions, a political kind of process writ large, which is what the constitution envisioned partly. I mean, I'm not closing off the courts. I'm just trying to, to say, okay, here's one solution. We have the political process in the states and in the Congress to basically put limits on or otherwise restrict what the states are doing with regard to partisan gerrymandering. And then you have the courts, right? Yeah, and that's what Justice Roberts says in his decision. He says, you know, there is a remedy for this. It's in the Constitution, Article 1, Section 4, the Elections Clause. If Congress doesn't like this, they can go ahead and make a law that that outlaws this practice or sets up a, a, a different way of, of drawing districts. And that was widely criticized, right? I mean, what? people saw it as a dodge. I, I don't know. So so what what do you guys think? Did 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 uh did the majority decide this case rightly? I mean, I'm not a huge you know court scholar or, or legal scholar. Um I I tend to agree a little bit with James although I do not look to the 19th century as a model of how democracy can function. Um but I will say like I I do see your point about the rights revolution which which produced a lot of important outcomes but also did lend itself to this notion that when you want to have your rights protected, you run to the court um, in a way that has become apolitical. I, I mean, I think it's... I, I've, I've very carefully dodged Lee's question here. It's okay. Um, I think that there, the Constitution is a little bit inadequate when it comes to its protection of the right to vote and its explanation of what that means. And I don't think I'm alone in thinking about that. And I think if the Constitution spelled that out, then you would have a much different constitutional situation. That's that, that being said, I do think that the if you were to think about this case a little bit more the way that the kind of rights revolution war in court thought about the cases before it about, you know, about equal protection and the right to privacy and things like that. If you were to kind of think about the, the penumbra of what the Constitution ultimately is about, um, the penumbra from, from Griswold v. Connecticut, um, the... Um, there's some strange mumbling happening right now. So um, it's in the penumbra, don't right, worry. Right, it's right the penumbra of the podcast. Right. So, but if you were to kind of think broadly, like, okay, there's a letter of the Constitution, but here is what it actually means: the Constitution is profoundly against the the consolidation of self interested power. Um, and so you could come up with a constitutional argument that says, look, these are fine. The Constitution doesn't acknowledge partisanship, but the 21st century has partisanship. And what we're seeing now, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. The the moment the Constitution was written, had partisanship. The whole system is premised on the existence of partisanship. Exactly. So we have a situation in which partisans are consolidating their power, and that violates the the principles of the Constitution, even if those principles are not articulated in in the language um, in the language of the day. And so those are, I think. You know, that's how you might see a role for the for the Supreme Court to protect these these interests. I do. I also think so to, to think a little bit about the politics point that that you were mentioning, James, earlier. What you were really talking about when you were talking about struggles for inclusivity are is a combination of, of social movements and of pulling political levers. Right. When we're talking about women's suffrage, when we're, when we're talking about civil rights. Um, so on the one hand, massive scale social movements are romantic, but they do usually emerge because of a very severe problem. So you might think, okay, why why push it to that point, right? Why not just deal with this before people have to mobilize in that regard? But 
but also these movements didn't succeed in the political realm without getting buy-in from politicians. And so there the question becomes, how do you create a situation in which politicians have some incentive to address this? Well, the problem is some politicians have an incentive to represent this and other politicians have an incentive to preserve the status quo because the the way the way this this current gerrymandering situation works it has it's largely benefiting republicans because republicans were the ones who redrew a bunch of district lines in after the 2010 census to, to gain so more votes. The, the Supreme Court case all, it technically is a, two cases, and one is brought by Democrats in, in North Carolina. The other is brought by Republicans in Maryland. And so it is a, I agree with you, it is generally seen as something that today benefits Republicans, but it isn't necessarily the case as proven by these two cases. I mean, right. gerrymandering and concern with gerrymandering is a bipartisan phenomenon, which I think, to your point, Julia, reflects this broader thing. And what I find so interesting about this is that it's you can engage you can try to engage in a kind of more political process to resolve your problems. It doesn't mean that there's not a role for a courts. Of course, the courts are there and they have a role to play. But what what strikes me today is the extent to which both sides see prevailing and winning as taking the politics out of the political process, whether it be at the Supreme Court, whether it be in sort of these commissions, you know, technocratic type solutions. And the idea is that if we can control the courts, right? Because you also then fight over the courts and you fight over who gets to serve on the courts. And then, well, we'll control the courts and then we can be the ones who will decide what the law says so that we can then win. And it's the, so you're basically engaging in an apolitical politics, if you will, when in reality, it's all politics. So, but we just pretend like the court isn't a political type right. thing. So let's now transition to, to the solutions uh, and the idea that we should have fair districts, right? So the 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 popular remedy uh, uh, that a lot of good government folks and Democrats are pushing is independent political commissions. And the idea there is you take the responsibility away from the politicians and you create some somebody of non-elected, independent, or equally Democrat, uninterested kings. <laughs> technocratic wizards who who somehow will come up with a fair districting scheme. And this is not unprecedented. The other countries that both the United Kingdom and Canada, which also have first past the post elections, also ha have independent redistricting commissions. Several states have independent redistricting commissions. Uh, a few more states uh, approve them with ballot initiatives last November. Uh, so is this going to, would the solution to, to our districting problem just be taking it out of politics entirely with real independent districting committees? What do, you, what do you guys think? Well, I don't know how you create an independent redistricting committee with human beings serving on it. I mean, what, what, what do you mean? People can't be independent? Well, no, I mean, <laughs> the, the idea is that you're going to make decisions. I mean, yes, there's, there, you can be overt and go you know, you can be explicitly partisan in making your redistricting decisions, but ultimately, at the end of the day, a solution to the, this particular political problem, at least in my opinion, is a political solution. It's not a technocratic kind of solution. And, you know, I, maybe there's different ways to have, you know, experts, you know, inform what the politicians are saying. But ultimately, the, the people have to have some sort of faith that the, they're voting for directly the kind of people that are making these consequential decisions and the kind of issues that the, the these places that legislators wrestle with get more and more controversial i think that 
it behooves us to try to figure out how to invest them with legitimacy. And I'm not sure giving it over to independent commissions is, is going to solve that problem. I think it's just push, kicking this can down the road and creating a, a, a different kind of issue. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm suspicious of these as well, having also been told about some of the literature that suggests that they don't really they these independent commissions just sort of they trend they kind of hide the interests as opposed to actually take them out of the process. I think what I've done is convince myself that actually the Supreme Court is the ideal institution to deal with this, and I know that the the Supreme Court has a lot of challenges, but it, some sort of theoretical. Supreme Court would be the place to deal with this because you're not going to take politics out of the process. What I think is important is to have some kind of break on that, right? The the real abuse here is the consolidation of power. And so you need a kind of national standard about what constitutes an abuse of power. Or at least some sort of intrigued by this, which is striking me as odd because I'm not necessarily a fan of giving the Supreme Court opportunities to weigh into these political issues. But you create some sort of national standard that then makes it easier for the people to then weigh in and hold accountable their their politicians when they violate that standard as well, right? I mean, it makes it... Because, right. I mean, I think the idea is how do you flesh out into the light of day but, these decisions and they, make it easier for voters right. to hold them accountable? I mean, I, I want to add one thing and then I'll let you talk, Lee. I'm sorry. Is Like, the Supreme Court comes to mind because that's who we think of as protecting our rights. But you could imagine a world in which there was a kind of NLRB or FEC that had teeth that could do this. But those institutions, of course, are also deeply political and, you know, the FEC basically non-functional. So, uh, I mean, a lot of it comes down to an issue we've talked about in this podcast before, which is federal oversight of elections, which is fairly non-existent. All right, right Lee, back to you. Oh, man, I have so many points to make. Um, Fabulous. <laughs> That's what I like to hear. Well, I mean, so on the re- on the independent redistricting commissions, I mean, the problem is <clears throat> that we have no agreed on standard of what a fair districting process should look like. So, we're asking an independent districting commission to trade off a bunch of bunch of things. One, you want it to be fair to both parties. Uh, Why does it have to be fair to both parties? Well, because it should be it should be fair. I mean that that that's one of our. That, I mean we, we could we could I argue. Feel like that's a philosophical question. We're not going to answer today. We could. Well, no, but I mean the whole notion of fairness, the way we decide that in a in a in well, a self governing republic is through politics. I mean that's well, that's the. I mean, yes, well, fairness well, exists. Well, but, but, but I mean, I mean, a, a fundamental principle of a democracy is that we should have free and fair elections where all parties can equally have access to power. So let, let's we can come back to to Not that. Sure that, that that's, part, okay. Well, okay. Well, we can we can debate the uh, free and fair democracy, but we also with want competition with competition. We also want elections to be competitive. Now, in many states, those are intention. We also want election uh, districts to keep communities of interest together and not and not break up communities. We also want districts to look kind of nice and compact. We also want to make sure that we have majority minority districts and minorities are represented. Now, all those are 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 intention with each other, and with, except for for minority representation, we don't really have clear standards for any of those. So in in an independent redistricting commission, you sort of have to decide which of those are are most important, and that itself is, as Julia was saying, that that is that is a political decision. So there's no there's no fair standard, and if you come if your party comes out on the losing side of that, 
process, then you think that's not fair. And that's what happened in Arizona. They moved to an independent redistricting process. It happened to benefit Democrats. And Republicans said, well, this is not an independent redistricting process because it helped Democrats. Right. And I'm intrigued. Is there a way to develop these types of standards? And maybe there's not. But then to use them to help inform the political process versus pretending like we can somehow take the decision entirely out of the political process. Does I mean, that make sense? I mean, you can have you can have a fight over over all the trade offs, but I mean, do, do, I, I want to circle back to your point, James, about accountability, which is you said, well, if people don't like this process, then they can vote their representatives out. Now, who is voting on this issue? Right, most people are voting on strict partisan lines, and which they're going to put a bunch of other stuff to the side because they want a Republican or a Democrat to win. Moreover. Most districts, and this is this does not have to do with gerrymandering, are solidly Democrat or solidly Republican because we have a geographical-based system of elections, and we have intense geographical, urban, rural polarization. So it doesn't matter how much how much gerrymandering you do, you're still going to have the cities are going to be overwhelmingly Democratic, and the the country is going to be overwhelmingly Republican, and also be because the, the Democrats concentrate their votes more in cities, single-member districts tend to help the party of the country. And there's a, a wonderful book out by Jonathan Rodden, who's a political scientist at Stanford, called Why Cities Lose, that shows that not only in the U.S., but also in the U.K. and Canada, there's a there's a, a, a rural conservative bias just because of the way that voters are, are spread out in single-member districts. And if you want to solve that problem, what you need is proportional representation, which also, by the way, solves the problem of gerrymandering entirely. Uh, I mean, it, it's single, and I'll, I'll quote from, from Justice Roberts' decision, there is a large measure of unfairness in any winner-take-all system, in that you're trading off among so many competing values in order to, to draw those districts. Moreover, it gives state legislators state lawmakers and, and district drawers, so many, an infinite number of possibilities. I mean, that's what happened in North Carolina, right? They, they, they had this computer program in which they drew, you know, thousands upon thousands of districts, and they picked the one, the one setup that gave them 10 Republicans and three Democrats, and then they, they went with, with that map. And they were able to do that precisely because voters are predictable partisans in these highly polarized times. And because modern map making and technology allows them to do that, so I think we're in a we're in a world in which gerrymandering, although it's been with us for a long time, is actually much worse than it ever has been, or has the potential to be much worse, and which calls for a, a, I think a a bigger remedy. I've always been fascinated by cartography. I will go ahead and put that out there, but I. I agree that gerrymandering would be a much bigger issue if the parties actually existed as we think they exist. Back eons ago when I started working on Capitol Hill, I worked in the House, and our delegation didn't agree at all on almost every single issue that we ever got together on. The parties are divided. Somebody from South Alabama is going to disagree with somebody from North Alabama. I don't care if they're both Republicans. And so if you don't like a district and you think your interests are going unheard or unadjudicated, you organize, you, you work with interest groups, you work with allies, you have coalitions, and you try to, to basically elevate your issue in a way that fractures the, the party. And we talked about this with regard to the realignment episode. And we're not 
that's not happening. And so I'm, I'm not sure that gerrymandering is the reason why our parties are, are kind of stuck. I think it's because we don't, we just assume that everybody agrees on the Republican side and everybody agrees on the Democratic side. And every time any issue of any consequence comes up these days, it turns out they don't agree at all. Well, and so if that's the case, that creates an opportunity for creative individuals and groups to come in and play politics and try to to create new realities and new coalitions. And then, yes, eventually get control of the legislature and draw new maps. If you're in, of course, they're going to pick the map that gives them the most votes. Why wouldn't they? Well, maybe we should have more parties so that the different factions in the Republican Party could have their own party and could fight it out. Uh, which would be a consequence of having proportional representation, which would solve the gerrymandering problem, which arises only from the fact that we have single winner plurality districts. Problem solved. Yeah, Lee, right. Lee is yeah. On he is on message. Today. Lee has a new book in case people have not heard. It's got a um, really cool cover. That's right. Tell us the name of your book, and then I'm going to have the last word. The book is called Breaking the Two Party Doom Loop The Case for Multi Party Democracy in America, which advocates for proportional representation. Fabulous. Yeah. I mean, this just to go to go off of that, I think what you know, what you're essentially saying, James, and I agree with you is the two parties are a lot less internally cohesive than they would appear given given the level of polarization. But what we, we know is the one thing they tend to agree on is the desire to screw the other party. Mm. And that's, you know, that's a place where gerrymandering can come in. Yes, it can. So what should we do? Well, I found that Robert's in his decision, and the court says, you know, partisan gerrymandering claims they're political questions beyond the reach of the courts. Well, the simple fact that they're deciding that it's beyond their reach means that it's not beyond their reach. <laughs> right? I mean, am I missing something? And if you are a concerned American on any side of the issue, it doesn't matter if you're Democrat or Republican. I think it should it should worry you if we're sitting around waiting for some unaccountable institution to come in and solve something that at its core is ultimately political in nature. And so I think the solution should be getting back in and doing politics, partici participating in politics and acting in politics to try to win whoever you are and whatever you think we ought to be doing. Julia? Can't argue with the idea that we need more politics. All right. Well, multi-party democracy would be a great way to bring more politics in. Proportional representation, it solves gerrymandering and it brings us more politics. And speaking of bringing things in the future, we will be bringing you another episode sometime in the future. That's all for today. We hope we've provoked, provoked more discussion on, on gerrymandering and been provocative and, and, uh, and raised some questions. And, <laughs> and buy my book. You can pre-order it on Amazon. Thanks for listening. Sorry, I haven't had enough sleep. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Politics in Question, a joint product of New America and the R Street Institute. Our producers today were Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. And the theme music is composed by yours truly.